Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. For the last two years, we've been journeying through Genesis as a community, delving into the origin stories and histories of our faith. In this series of Genesis, we step into the patriarchal families of Abraham and continue to see how both the promise of God is fulfilled, but also the brokenness of man. Ultimately, we see that even though we are the great promise breakers, he is the great promise keeper. We pray that this message is a blessing. Genesis 25 from verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Rachel. Awesome. Friends, why don't you grab a seat, beat me to it. The older I get, the, um, the more I love a good warranty. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Anyone feel this way? Yeah, I'm not alone in this. The more I love a good warranty. The other, um, last year, Kath and I moved into our place and from our rental, and we were like, we need a vacuum. We need a stick vacuum. You know what we should get? We should get a Dyson. But then we chatted with every single person, asked them their their impression with a Dyson, and more people than not, this is going to be controversial, more people than not were like, hey, it's not worth all the hype, not worth all the the money. Does anyone feel what I'm saying? Yeah, a couple of people. This is safe space, very safe space, not a problem at all. So we bought this thing from JB Hi-Fi. I didn't even know the brand, but it was on sale, 200 bucks. We thought we'd struck gold with this thing because it sucked like nothing else before. It was incredible, incredible vacuum. Yeah, wow, that should have got a Dyson, goodness me. But recently, don't get too distracted with um, however you could, anyway. Recently, it started to falter. And when it started to falter, I remember thinking, goodness me, it's going to break. And in getting close to breaking, I remember thinking one thing, does it have a warranty? You know that feeling? A few years ago, we bought a fridge from the second-hand place, and it just failed. The the seal on it stopped working, and I remember thinking, goodness me, I don't trust the product or the maker of the product anymore. I hope this thing has a warranty. Lo and behold, lucky us, it had a warranty. And the good thing about warranties is they protect the maker of the brand, the thing that you've purchased, but also, too, they provide an answer when all hope seems Lost. That's exactly how it feels. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Spend this money, you don't want to fork out more money, I hope I have a warranty. 
Now today, we step into our new series in the book of Genesis. Uh, For the last three years, we've been walking through this first book of the Bible, which sort of sets the trajectory and the categories within which the whole story of the Bible unfolds. In the first year, 2019, does that ring a bell? 2020, we walked through Genesis 1 through to 11, and Genesis 1 through to 11 tells a story about God and the world. We looked in Genesis 1 about the story of God creating a world from nothing, bringing order out of chaos, and then sort of putting his crown jewel of creation in the midst of the garden and said within them that they've got honor, dignity, value, and worth, or in other words, in Latin terms, the imago Dei, that all humans bear the image of God because of which they get value, worth, and dignity. Genesis 2, sort of a different angle to the same story, looked at the creation of Adam and Eve, the first humans, our ancestors, not sort of charting a chronology or a material mechanism by which God created the world, but more the meaning behind all the material stuff we see. And here's the takeaway point we got from Genesis 2, that God didn't give us a final product that was a paradise, but a project that he could pass over to humans to steward in a creative way the beautiful land that God had given his people. And we went from Genesis 2 thinking, goodness me, therefore architecture is valid, therefore justice is good, therefore beauty and art all have a place in God's unfolding world where humans take forward as image bearers the creation that he's passed on to us. But then Genesis 3 to chapter 11 tell the story about humanity rather than following God's ways, rather than following the way that he ordained for us to follow and being part of his good project in the world, actually turned in on themselves. And we read in Genesis 3 of Adam and Eve going against God's commands, because of which sin enters the world. And a lot of theologians, they'll say that that's when the fall happened, that in other words, we fell from grace, we we sort of disqualified ourselves from God's presence and love and spirit. But actually, that sort of echoes right through to chapter 11, all the way through Genesis 3 to 11, and we learned that actually the world finds itself in a really prickly situation, because God had this beautiful hope for humanity but because we turned in on ourselves and away from him, away from one another, his plan for the world failed too. And so two big problems. What's God gonna do about humans? And what's God gonna do about the rest of the world that he intended to become like the beautiful garden that he'd placed Adam and Eve in? What's gonna become of those things? Year two is where God outworks his warranty. There's a long illustration for you. Genesis 12, last year we looked at all the way through to chapter 25, and it tells the story of Abraham, and it's this weird transition moment where God goes from telling the story about him and the world now to this one local family. And the phrase I want to use to talk about Genesis 12 and onwards is just this, that God shops local for mission. God comes to a family. You've got this big cosmic picture of God in the world, and now this random family line introduced by the structure of the book of Genesis, and it tells this story of Abraham. And today, we kick off a new series. Following on from the story of Abraham, stepping now into the story of Jacob and Joseph, we're going to finish the book of Genesis from chapters 25 through to chapter 50. Not today. Today, we're zooming in on one chapter, chapter 26. And there's two things I want us to see, well, not see, but there's two things to keep our minds around as we step into this passage right now. And that is this, that we're going to look at the story of two individuals, Jacob and Esau, and their birth story. But the theme that comes out of it is the question of election. Now, just Christians in the room, who's heard that word before, election? Just really helpful. Wonderful. 
And when you hear this term, all these sort of sirens start going off in our minds because we start to think, man, what's the preacher going to say? Is he going to start talking about these philosophical concepts? Is he going to start talking in this way that's really pastorally significant? Is he going to sort of sort the age-old Christian debate between the sovereignty of God's will and the freedom of human will as we think through election? And I would just say, yep, in the next 25 minutes, that's what we're going to do. I'm just kidding, but we will dip in and out of that thing. Here's my big idea and then three points we're gonna walk through. My big idea is this, and I want you to hear this today because I think there's people in the room that have walked in thinking of themselves as disqualified from Christian ministry and particularly being used by God in this world for good and for his glory. And here's my big idea. It's simply this, that God uses and elects the unlikely to take part in the unimaginable. Does that sound awesome? I need that in my life. God uses and elects the unlikely to take part in the unimaginable. And to look at that, we're going to look at three ways we see election taking place in this text, and from it, think through how we might apply it to our lives. And those three things are this. One, the God of election. Two, the nature of election. And three, the recipients of election. So number one, the God of election, verses 19 and 20. If you've got your Bible, why don't you open it up? Let's walk through together. And I want you to see what I can see, so that way us together can walk forward seeing the same thing. Chapter 25 of Genesis, verses 19 to 20, it says this. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Super entertaining read this passage. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah's daughter of Bethuel, and the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. I actually think Rachel did a better job at pronouncing those than I did. But here's my question. Why do these details matter? You ever find yourself asking that question when you read the Bible? What's with all the stories of the genealogies and the birth and the family? Why does this all matter? And actually, in the book of Genesis, it really does matter what takes place in these genealogies. One of the ways to structure the book of Genesis is to look at it from chapter 1 to 11, and then afterwards from 11 to chapter 50, 12 to 50. Another way is to note all the times in the book of Genesis that the writer says, here's the storyline of this family. Here's the storyline of this family. And scholars call this, there's an annoying word here, the Toledot formula. And Toledot is a means by which to introduce the genealogy and the names of families that they walk through. Now, here's what's happening, because there's this fascinating shift that happens between chapter 11 and chapter 12, and then again here at 25. In chapter 11, it's a story of God and the world. Verse 1 of chapter 11 says this, now the whole world. And so think, if you're a film writer, a movie director, you're going big picture. It's sort of like interstellar, you know, this big cosmic picture of the world. It's like zoomed out. And you know a good story writer and a good movie director by when they zoom in and slow down on particular moments, which is why if you're a reader, a good literature student, you should notice that when you get to chapter 12 and it zooms in, the question you've got is like, why? Why this family? Why are they significant? And the answer of the book of Genesis is that the Genesis 12 family of Abraham reminded to us in Genesis 25, the story of Isaac and Jacob, solves the problem of Genesis 3 to 11. That's the point. And here, what God, through the writer of Genesis, is doing is he's reminding the reader that God's not done solving the problem of the world. Do you see that? This would be random details on a page, but if you walk through the storyline of the Bible and you go through the book of Genesis, you will see, here's the key point that the writer's asking you to consider. God isn't done yet. That family I talked about in Genesis 12, that one that I said through whom will come blessing to the nations, sorting out the sin problem of the world and restoring humans to God and through God, restoring the world to God and that problem that's now been sort of mixed up because of sin, 
I am gonna do something through Abraham. And then you chat through to Genesis 25 and all of a sudden, that story of Abraham comes up again. And he's just saying the solution of Genesis 12 for the Genesis 3 problem continues to be outworked in Genesis 25. So here's the question of this first point. Do you trust God to finish what he started? This is the key question that the original readers are walking away from this passage with. Do you trust God to finish what he started? Or in other words, where do you put your hope? Let me just go personal, then we'll go cosmic, corporate. Cosmic seems very transcendent, doesn't it? Personal note. Recently, I was made very aware that I need God to finish what he started in me. I don't know if you've had these moments in your life. Um, Surely I'm unique in this, right? I'm alone in this. But I snapped at the person I hold most dear, my wife. And it was actually before church last week. And I remember driving home with her that night. We got emotional about it. Does anyone else fight with their spouse on the way to church sometimes? No, just me. And I just... (laughs) And I remember just thinking, oh, I'm not there yet. You know what I mean? Yeah, those are moments in life you're like, I'm just not there yet. And for me, it's like, you know, I, I, can, I can be anxious sometimes. And so when I think maybe of church of an afternoon, I'm like, oh, there's all these spinning plates that make church happen. I'm like, who's making sure the plates are going to land in the right place? And, and so my wife comes along trying to help me, and I'm just like, what about this? And she's like, I didn't know you needed that. And I'm just like, you should read my mind. You know what I'm saying? And <laughs> And then church unfolded, and no one here would have had any clue. We get in the car, babe, I'm so sorry. We processed it, I learned a bunch, and I just remember thinking, oh, I'm not there yet. Now, what do I do with that? Do I pick myself up by my own moral bootstraps and try and fix myself? Or do I cast myself on the mercies of God, who time and time again has proven himself faithful, not just with the cosmos, but in my life as well? What do I do? And here's what the writer of Genesis would say. God will finish what he started. Let's go cosmically, if I can just go there for a second. Think about the world right now. About a month ago, the world ticked over from just under you know, 8 billion to now 8 billion people, population worldwide. Huge. <laughs> there is a very celebratory person in our midst this afternoon, <laughs> and I like it, just for what it's worth. Last week, it was the anniversary uh, from the day that the tanks rolled into Ukraine and mothers and fathers put their young kids on trains and kissed them goodbye and turned to grab their AK-47s and take part in fighting for freedom. Intellectuals around the world since the turn of the 20th century have described our world as a VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And we find ourselves in a moment where what we thought was gonna be this sort of trip and march through human effort and optimism alone to get to this beautiful world governed by us actually turns out wanting. There's a book written a few years ago called The Happiness Paradox, while while the world gets better but people feel worse. And I think we're living in a moment where we thought we'd be able to fix the world as humans, broadly speaking, but actually all the categories that we've entrusted ourselves to find themselves wanting, and it just makes us as individuals better at hiding the real stuff that lays underneath the carpet of our lives. Do you feel what I'm talking about? 
What's our world put their trust in? A few years ago, we were at a small group in Sydney, and we went around the tables our first night, and who knows, like, awkwardness of first night at small group, yeah? You know that feeling? Yep. Been there? Any small group leaders in the room? Don't show yourself, then your small group will know what you really feel. And we were there, and everyone went around the room and sort of introduced themselves, and uh, I went around, I was like, hey, my name's Alex, I've got a weird fascination with coffee, and uh, I like listening to Bon Iver. And the next person comes along, and <laughs> great gig, though. And the next person comes along, and they're like, hey, my name's, you know, Kathleen, I work as a social worker, and I really like... Um, Good shoes. That's a lie. <laughs> when you ha there was this moment where I was like, what do I reveal? I think she can reveal. Go chat with her. Anyway. Um, but there was this girl who became one of our closest friends, and she said, my name is X. Won't reveal her identity. My name is X, but, not but, and I can't wait for Jesus to return. And I was like, all right, champion. Way to flex your Christian card. And I was like, what is she talking about? But as we got to know her and understand the theological framework behind that statement, what we realized is she's like, man, the world is a mess. Who do I trust to make it all better? And she says, wouldn't it be awesome if Jesus returned today? Not to wipe out the world, but to judge evil and renew the good. That we would be in the new heavens and new Jerusalem, that with Jesus at the center, the garden that started, the city that God wanted to bring along. And so here's what I would say. If you're a Christian, the other side of the turn of the century, not the century, the two millennium, on the other side of Jesus Christ, here's what this means for us to partner with God's faithfulness. Pray for Jesus to return. Has a preacher ever told you that before? You can pray for Jesus to return. And when you pray for Jesus to return, you are, you're partnering with God's best to resolve the world's worst. That's what you're doing when you're praying for Jesus to return. God is faithful. That's the God who elects, the faithful one, the promise keeper, the one who is steadfast and secure, such that Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 24 would put it like this, a bit of a verse for this church. The one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. I need to hear that. You need to hear that. We need to hear that. The God of election. Two, the nature of election in the 10 minutes I've got left. A few years ago, this famous teacher, R.C. Sproul, he was teaching a, a course on God's sovereignty, God's bigness, his transcendence, and the question of election. He walks into a classroom and he quotes from the first line of the third article of the Westminster Confession. It says this. He says... God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And he asked these two questions. He said, will those in the room who, agree, who disagree with me raise their hand? And so no one raises their, or oh, a few people raise their hand because they disagree with that particular statement. And the next question he asks is, Will those in the room who are atheists raise their hand? And no one raises their hand. And then he makes the claim that those who raised their hand to the first question should have raised their hand to the second question. Because what was central for Sproul is a particular view of how God marries together his sovereign will with human free will. That's a key article of Christian religion. And so as we come to this story of election, and particularly this passage, this question comes up, and here's why it comes up. It comes up because the Apostle Paul in Romans 9 takes this passage and gives commentary to it in such a way that there's a debate about what we conclude when we look at God's sovereignty and God's will and our human free choice. So do you mind if I just take five minutes just to walk us through that? Everyone's like, no, none of us are interested in that. And... But when I do this, here's what I want you to know. One of the beauties about being part of this church in your life 
is we've got a statement of faith. We align with an organization called Propel Network. It's a network of churches that affirm the same things theologically. And it's got a whole host of things that, you know, we look at and say, yeah, that's awesome. The Bible is the inspired word of God, authoritative for teaching. Men and women equally are called into ministry. We celebrate their gifts. It does not ask us to decide upon what we think about this particular notion. In fact, the Uniting Church doesn't either. It takes as what they call informative, the confessions that come up in the 15th century because of which we get the big names that make up this debate. But here's the two names of the debate, Arminian and Calvinist. Has anyone heard those terms before? This is just a five-minute teaching moment. It should be really helpful, I hope. But there's an application point for us, I really pray. Arminian and Calvinist. On one end of the spectrum, Calvinists would say simply that we would highlight God's sovereignty, God's will, God's freedom to ordain. On the other end of the spectrum, we would highlight the Arminian camp, which simply says that human free will is a really big thing. We'd focus particularly on that. Now, the implications of those things are huge, but again, down the Calvinist side, we'd simply say God chooses, and particularly when it comes to salvation, who gets to go to heaven, so to speak, that's where the debate lands, God chooses. Whereas the Arminian camp would say down the other end of the spectrum, actually, we think that that which is decisive for salvation is humans choosing. And here's what I can't do in the next five minutes, solve this conundrum for us, but I can walk through this particular passage. But note this, right? I'll try and slow down my speaking, I promise. Note this. The pastoral implications of these things are huge. One thing I wanted to do before I stepped in, into this role as pastor was sort out what I thought about this, because here's the pastoral implications, all of which are helpful and different, but nonetheless different. You got that point. So what does this mean for suffering? Well, if God ordains everything, then God predetermines suffering. Now, the good news about that is that even if you can't understand it, God's definitely got a plan. There's something comforting about finding yourselves at the mercy of God's wisdom and not your own. Really comforting. The other end of the spectrum, the Arminian camp, would simply say this, that God permits suffering, that God in his sovereignty limits his sovereignty to human free will and the causes of sin that that's affected, and therefore sin at loose in the world, at large in the world, until Jesus comes to restore it, God permits. Either way, God sovereignly allows or determines things to happen. Partial implications are huge. I won't go into the other ones that will be for you and I sitting down over coffee together after you email me this week. What do we learn from this passage? Let me just read it and read from Romans 9, and we'll pull out a few things that I think might be helpful, not to stay the flood, but to lead us forward into the next moment. If you've got your Bibles, verse 21 all the way down to 23, says this, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. Now go to Romans 9. Let's read that really briefly. And we're going to read chapter 6 through to chapter 16. Paul says this, It's not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Stay with me, friends. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Now, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? 
Not at all, for he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here's the line. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Two ways to read this. The first way is simply this, that God determines people's destinies and chooses which individuals get saved. That's one way to read it. The other way to read it is that Paul is arguing against the Jewish audience who wanted to limit who gets saved purely to those people who are physical descendants of Abraham. So here's the question, who's Paul writing to? Now let me unfold what I think would be a meaningful argument toward the latter without asking you to walk away thinking that you need to conclude on this topic because we've just spent five minutes dancing around it for a second. Here's some observations from Genesis 25. Number one, it's not about a God who chooses to save. It's about a God setting someone aside for a particular mission. They're very different. Very different things. Now, God sets a precedent for this in the Old Testament, and he outworks it still in the New Testament. But here we have election to service, not election to salvation. Very different things. Second, it holds in tension the human request of prayer and God's meaningful response. Did you see that? Verse 21, he prayed to the Lord. Fascinating moment. Right after that, you hear this beautiful story of God with sovereignty and foreknowledge, knowing what this individual could be like, actually saying what they will indeed be like the older will serve the younger. It's not about heaven or hell. It's actually about service. And two, it holds in tension this beautiful relationship between meaningful dialogue partners, creatures and creator. Number two, what's the context of Romans 9? Here's Paul's tension, at least as you walk through the story of the book of Romans, which just for runners up is just simply this. Romans 1 to chapter 3 is a story of uh, one to four is the story of what God's done in Jesus to take forward the Jewish story whereby the hope of a Messiah actually came true so that what was a Jewish story about them having a sort of set-apart people group actually now included others that weren't just Jews as well. And then from chapter five through to chapter eight, it's like Paul worshiping and sort of going big picture and saying the first Adam died, the second Adam brought life, chapter five, chapter six, gift of the spirit, chapter seven, Paul sort of wrestling with this Jewish interlocutor and... I'll stop using big words, and here's the takeaway point. Paul's holding in tension two things as he writes the book of Romans, and here they are, the two ingredients. Listen to this. One, he wants to vindicate the Jewish story. What do I mean? He wants to make those that that are listening to him see that God did indeed use them in times gone by. He wants them to feel that. Why? Because that is indeed the case. That's what the Old Testament is. He wants to vindicate the Jewish story. In other words, he wants to say that the lineage from which comes the Savior is Jewish. At the same time, there were Jews who were rejecting the Savior and saying that if people wanted to truly be part of God's people in this moment, they needed to become Jewish. And for Paul, he knew that that wasn't on, that in other words, you didn't need to become Jewish to become Christian. And so Paul wants to also rebut his interlocutor, his audience, and say to them, actually, that's not the case. We are saved by grace through faith in the provided Messiah, in the Savior, Jesus, the Lord and King. It's not in the ways of old. I'm doing something new. It's a new covenant. So he wants to hold in tension his vindication of their people group, while at the same time pushing back on the fact that they were proud about their ethnicity, saying that people needed to become Jewish to become Christian. So what does Paul do? He actually says that the whole goal of the Old Testament is that God would elect a people through whom that very people would not be limited to that purely ethnic group. Let me just quote a scholar and I'll move on to application and maybe there's time for point number three, but here it is. 
Paul, this is um, two scholars from Asbury Theological College. Paul is not forging a doctrine of unconditional individual election, but establishing God's freedom to pour out his mercy beyond the boundaries of Jewish ethnic identity. Or in other words, if I'm a Jew in the first century and I say to Paul, hey Paul, don't people need to become Jewish to become Christian? Paul would say, no, no, that's not the right desire. It's about my mercy. I want to extend the bounds of my mercy from this particular people group. That was my original mission, that you would be a conduit, you would be a servant, you would be used by me to take the good news of my presence and my blessing through yourself to the world. That in other words, here's the basic point, at least as I read Romans 9, which we all have to wrestle with, and this church won't ask you to sign the dotted line on either way. God is rich in mercy, not calculated. Right? Like Paul says that in Ephesians. He's rich in mercy, not calculated. He's lavish in grace, not selective. He's unending in kindness and love, not limited. And the whole goal from the story of Genesis 3 has been that he would elect a people through whom he would bless the world. That's the point. Or in other words, election in biblical vocabulary is less about God choosing individuals to go to heaven and more about God choosing a particular community through whom to bring heaven to earth. So here's the question, what community are you part of? That's the question that election should provoke in your mind. What community are you a part of? And if it's the Christian one, then here's your mission, to be part of the people through whom God brings heaven to earth. Here's my big idea. God elects the unlikely to take part in the unimaginable. That's what election is the election of the unlikely to take part in the unimaginable. One more point for you, I won't apply this one. Theology's dense enough, am I right? How are we all doing? Good. We're good, awesome. For this last one, here's my question as we begin. What did you come in here carrying this afternoon? So you think about what God's doing in the world. You think about who you are. What did you come in here carrying this afternoon? I so easily disqualify myself from this sense of being able to be used by God. But what we learn from this passage is actually that there's very little things that disqualify us, that in fact what's key to qualifying us is not our good, not our perfection, but actually the mercy and kindness and mission of God. So let me read verses 24 to 28. And as I get into this, can I have the band just join behind me here? 24 to 28 says this, When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, not a compliment. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, he loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now here's the key contextual piece you've got to see from this passage. It's that in ancient cultures, the person who would take forward the family line wasn't the best person, wasn't the perfect person, it was purely the person who came first. It's a culture of what we call primogeniture. And primogeniture purely says that the person who gets most of the estate, does most of the forward thinking, does most of the work to protect the legacy of their father, is the oldest son. And so when the prophet comes to them and says, as they inquire of God, who will do what here? Who can we expect to take forward this family line? It is a deep shock, a deep shock deep shock that it's not the older, that it's the younger. But to add heartache onto hardship, the text goes one further and says, actually, if I was to compare these two people, 
let me paint a picture of the first one that would lead you to expect him to lead. Hairy man, hunting guy, the one his father loved. We'd expect that. So who are we thinking is gonna take forward the family line? We would think Esau, the big guy, the gruff guy, the guy that if I did a few more bench presses, I might be a shadow of. But then you got Jacob. And Pastor Mike in his sermon last week, he, used, he had some really helpful language to describe Jacob. Jacob is a mama's boy at home, loved by his mum. I did some research this week and actually dis- discovered that the technical language sort of suggested he's quite likely to be a shepherd, which is interesting. Smelly guy, social outcast, despised by his community, rejected, the last, the least, and the lost. So why does God choose him? Growing up, we all had that moment. I stole this illustration from Pastor Michael. He'll forgive me. But we all had this moment in the schoolyard, lunchtime, and we're about to play soccer. And so someone has the bright idea of saying, all right, Dylan, you be a captain. Kathy, you be another captain. Choose your team tension builds, cut the air with a knife. And your question is, as someone who's not the captain, will I get chosen and when will it happen? Now to be chosen last is to be suggested to that you would bring the least contribution to the success of this team, right? That in other words, you would qualify yourself for entry into the team based on your performance, what you can merit, what you can do. And the helpful language to describe what this kind of culture is, is a meritocracy. And our world lives in meritocracy. Think about it for your workplace. You have the job you do because you've merited the reputation you've got based on the performance you've had and the references you've got to get the job you find yourself out working. It's not unhelpful, but it's meritocracy. And the hope is that one day you won't be chosen last and you might indeed come first. It's your workplace. Think about it in your family. So often we can judge our family members by how we merit the love that we would give them. If you're a married person, you know what I'm talking about. It's really easy in marriage to keep score, then in other words, to develop a meritocracy about the relationship that you live. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Our world is steeped in, enculturated within, envisioned by meritocracy. And here's the good news about the Christian story. God is not. Some of you walked in here this afternoon thinking, man, I wanna be used by God in my life. Man, I want to be a conduit through which God brings the heavenly blessing of himself to other people in my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my community, and indeed in this church. But you sit here in the pew and you think, oh, but I did that this week, you know? Surely that disqualifies me. Or you sit throughout your week and you think, oh, I'm just not qualified enough. I can't speak as fast as the guy who gets up every second Sunday. I can't talk in that way or I can't. And you sort of use all these reasons by which to disqualify yourself from coming to God and being used by God. And here's the beauty of the Christian story. God doesn't see you that way. That God would actually have the inverse reflection. He would look at you and say, man, what a beautiful specimen. What a wonderful, marvelous creation in whom I can display my glory. Or in other words, if you were to have a picture of God that you're leaving here this afternoon with, it's this, that God is not scouring the earth or this church looking for the best and the brightest that he would qualify. He's looking for the last, the lost, and the least who he can humbly and beautifully display his glory through. Why do I know that? I know that because that's my story. You know, growing up, I didn't have a Christian family. They didn't have a faith background or a faith framework. 
and I didn't live the life that I wanted to live growing up. I was the kind of person who would, you know, I'd say chase girls and play soccer as opposed to chase balls and soccer balls and play. Anyway, that did not come out the way I wanted it to. Can we, can we call that another family moment? Is that okay? It's really helpful for me. But, you know, I look back and I mean, I'm like, oh, I hurt people. You know what I mean? I hurt people. I didn't keep the own rule book that I'd internally made for myself. And I would, to use a word from Paul, I'd, I'd fallen short of the glory of God. And I felt that. But when I came into a relationship with Jesus, with God through Jesus Christ, it wasn't that he was standing there scowling at me. He was standing there inviting me to follow him. And it was this beautiful invitation where he says, I see all that you've done. I wipe the slate clean. Step into a relationship with me and perhaps even also be used by me. It's discipleship. It's mission. It's election. What would it mean for you? Why don't you stand to your feet? Here's what I want to boil this down to. You can become part of God's elect people in the world. In other words, God's mission of bringing heaven to earth in the world. And you can't disqualify yourself from that. You can only receive what Jesus has done. Put your hand up to receive his grace. Repent and be obedient to him. And so with every eye closed, every head bowed, I want to give invitation for people perhaps to respond to Jesus for the first time. And I want to do something after that if that's okay too. But maybe you're here this afternoon and you think, actually, I've never been part of this good mission in the world. I would love to be. And I want to step into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Not as a holding pattern, but actually as the next adventure for my life. And so if that's you and you feel the stir within your heart to say yes to Jesus, to become part of God's people and God's mission in the world, I just want to invite you, maybe for the first time, just to raise your hand where you are. We're going to make space for you. We're going to pray for you. We're going to create a little moment together where you might respond to God through Jesus. So if you would like to step into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, just invite you where you are, just to raise your hand nice and high. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Nice and high. It's really helpful. All the eyes are closed. You're in a safe space. We're going to pray alongside you in a moment, but I see those two hands. Thank you so much. And my hope is right now that this wouldn't be a prayer that you simply pray, but you would feel encouraged as people pray alongside you. So we're going to pray to God, sorry, thank you, and please. And so if you're a Christian in this house this afternoon, can I invite you just to pray along these words with me and encourage our, brother, uh, our brothers as they pray this prayer with us too. God, sorry for the life that I've lived. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for chasing me. And thank you for coming after me to win me in relationship. Please come into my life and help me follow you. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Friends, we have got a gift for you. So if you prayed that prayer, um, please don't leave this afternoon without receiving a gift from our host team in the foyer. We'll make sure we've got that available for you. Just a Bible to help you on your journey as you start following Jesus and take some next steps in this community. But in the meantime, I just want to pull a call out just why all eyes are still closed. And I'm not going to pray for this one. I'm actually going to ask the people of God to pray around you. I think there's people in the room that feel called to ministry this afternoon. 
You want to be used by God. And so if that's you, you find yourself running from that, disqualifying yourself from that, and you hear about a God who's gracious and merciful and through repentance and faith would help you in that journey as you become part of his witness to the world, I just want to invite you, raise your hand where you are. If you feel called to ministry in any meaningful way, you want to be used by God in this world, in your community, in your workplaces, just raise your hand nice and high. Wonderful. Nice and high. We'd, we'd love the community around you to see this. Wonderful. Keep going nice and high. It's really helpful. Then can I just invite others in the community, just while hands are raised, just to partner with what God's doing in that individual and just go lay your hands on them if they're okay with that. Please just ask them if they're okay with that as you do that. So just lay hands. It's really helpful, wonderful. If you need to get out of your pew, in fact, some of us will need to get out of our pew to participate in this next moment. Nice and high. I think there might be others in the room. This moment can sort of stay open a little bit more. If you feel called by God to get into ministry, to be used by Him in this world, just raise your hand nice and high. Wonderful. Super helpful. That's great. Behind me, the band is going to start playing. We're going to worship together. We'll call kids in probably in 10 minutes and we'll worship some more as we await dumplings. But just as you're with that individual, just start partnering with what the Spirit is doing. We're just saying, Holy Spirit, we bless what you're doing. We pray for this individual. Maybe ask them, can I pray for you? And pray into what they'd have you pray into for them. But for the rest of us, just in one voice, we're gonna worship the King together. So I can invite you just where you are to lift your voice. Let's worship Jesus together. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.